Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to talk about the always uncomfortable and sometimes terrifying situation when a compliance officer must critique a member of the leadership team and and live to tell about it. In recent years, the expression tone at the top has been displaced by the much scarier term conduct at the top, which has really ushered in a new era of leadership accountability and transparency by the DOJ and other enforcement agencies in the U.S. and overseas. As a practical matter, compliance officers must on occasion investigate or critique members of the leadership team when conducting an internal investigation or assessing the ethics and compliance program. Joining me today is Matt Tanzer. For 13 years, Matt held various positions at Tyco, including Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer, a position he also held after Tyco was merged into Johnson Controls. Matt previously was in the General Counsel's Office at GE. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here with you. I look forward to sharing some of my insights from my many years in the compliance field. Well, thanks, Matt. So, Matt, you worked at two iconic global companies during the height of their prominence. Many of the executives at those storied organizations were really larger-than-life figures with a great deal of organizational clout. Can you share an experience in which you had to critique a member of the leadership team? Sure, Scott. One situation in particular comes to mind from when I was the chief compliance officer at Tyco. We had a new senior executive join the company. This was someone who was a direct report to the CEO, a member of the C-suite, and I was tasked with sitting down with that person and ensuring that they satisfied the corporate governance guidelines, especially with regard to outside interests, to make sure there were no conflicts of interest. So I had to interview this new officer and probe him about several consulting businesses that he owned and managed in his area of expertise. And according to the conflicts of interest policy that existed at the time in the company, I had the unfortunate and somewhat perilous job of informing this senior officer that he would need to resign from his director or management positions at two outside entities he was involved in. Obviously, this was not welcomed news, and the senior officer was not too happy about it. Nevertheless, you know, he understood that this must be done. I explained to him our corporate policies, and he assured me that he would submit his resignation promptly. Because of his role and seniority and status in the company, I decided not to challenge or insult his integrity by asking him to confirm in writing when this was done. I simply accepted his assurances at face value, trusted he would do the right thing, took notes on it, and accepted you know, his representations that he would very quickly remove himself from those positions. Well, in hindsight, that was a mistake on my part. It turns out, time went on, I didn't circle back on this matter, and about a year later, I actually was no longer the chief compliance officer at that time. I had been elevated to assistant general counsel of the company, but I got a call from internal audit, and they wanted to sit down and talk to me about this very issue. So I met with the auditors, and they were asking me all kinds of questions about my prior conversation with this senior leader of the company and about how it was left with him resigning from these two positions. And they didn't tell me exactly what had transpired since, again, I was no longer chief compliance officer, but it seemed pretty clear that he had not followed through, notwithstanding his representations to me. And fortunately, I was able to dig out my old notes from the conversation 
where I could demonstrate that he had assured me that he was going to do so. That was one situation where it was uncomfortable at the outset in trying to uh, explain to this senior leader that he needed to remove himself from a couple of outside entities. And it was uncomfortable a year later when it turns out he hadn't actually done it. So a couple of lessons learned there. What advice would you give a compliance officer or in-house counsel to strike the right balance between carrying out their duty while still not committing career suicide in the process? It can be a delicate balance, Scott. As a chief compliance officer, it's your responsibility to make sure that all compliance and ethics policies are adhered to especially by senior management, who are the ones that set the tone and example for the company. They really need to walk the talk. And given the personalities and the type of people who end up in those roles, they're often very strong-willed and certainly quite powerful in the organization. It can be challenging to work with them to ensure they actually do walk the talk. Challenging someone like that who runs afoul of a compliance requirement can test not only your own resolve, but it can test the resolve of the other senior managers in the company. Whenever I faced that situation, and it did occur more than once in my career, I would follow you know, a few guiding principles. First, I always took the approach of never swim alone. Don't go about this all on your own. Always want to enlist support before you're going to take an action that might be controversial, that might be upsetting, that, that might ruffle some feathers, especially with the senior leadership. So I would make sure that my boss, the general counsel, knew full well what the situation was. I would brief her, explain to her, and talk to her about steps I would intend to take and get her advice, make sure I had her support. I mean, the last thing I wanted and anyone would want is for their boss to be blindsided by some compliance issue affecting one of their C-suite colleagues, and then they're putting them in the position of, do they back you or do they back them? You want to make sure you, they've got your back before you take any action. So building consensus to do the right thing is one running rule I would strongly encourage people to do. You may want to reach out to others, the chief human resources officer, sometimes maybe even the CEO, maybe chief operating officer, and just make sure you've got that support at the senior level for taking some sensitive action. So that's rule number one. Rule number two, always be professional. Don't let emotions or power struggles interfere in the process of correcting a problem. Senior leaders are often very powerful. They're accustomed to getting their way and they often don't respond well to having their behavior challenged. So it's critical to stay calm and professional in all dealings with them. Let the facts and the policies carry the day. Don't get caught in the trap of thinking that compliance is all-powerful and, and more powerful than some of these leaders because you can be beaten down pretty readily if you're perceived to be on a power trip. So that's rule number two, be professional, be calm. Rule number three, be humble, but firm. So this is similar to being professional, but you know, maintain a, a dose of humanity and, and some empathy and understanding. Remember, everyone is human. We all make mistakes. You don't want to come down with a holier-than-thou attitude. You want to just carry out your responsibilities, as I said, professionally with some humility, but at the same time, don't let yourself be steamrolled. Be insistent that the rules be followed, that compliance requirements are met. Just do it without a chip on your shoulder. You know, after all of that, hopefully you will carry the day and you'll get the support you need at the senior level. If you don't, if you're not supported and you believe that, you know, that compliance is not getting the respect or response it deserves, you know, depending on the circumstances, you may have to make some difficult choices about whether you can stay in the role, chief compliance officer, or whether you stay with the company if it's bad enough. You know, those are some suggestions that I have for anybody who's in that difficult position of facing off with senior leaders. Let me take just two minutes and give you a real life example to put this in context. When I first joined Johnson Controls, when Johnson Controls merged with Tyco and I was 
the chief compliance officer of the merged company. The two cultures were fairly different, I would say. And some of the senior leaders at Johnson Controls had received some highly valued gifts from an organization that they were doing business with. And by highly valued, I'll just put it out there. This was with the NFL Hall of Fame that Johnson Controls was striking a deal with. And the Hall of Fame had given some of the senior leaders some very valuable football memorabilia. And the senior leaders simply took it and they were thrilled to have it and excited about it. But these gifts exceeded the company policy on what they were allowed to accept without paying for it or returning it. So I had the difficult challenge of being the new chief compliance officer with a new set of executives who had a very different sense of what was required in terms of compliance policies. And I had to explain to them that their own policy, the pre-existing Johnson Controls policy, did not allow them to keep these gifts without either paying for them or giving them back. And it was a delicate dance that I had to do to convince them all that, look, you know, they needed to set the standard. They needed to demonstrate to the rest of the employee community that they were adhering to these requirements. And fortunately, they all understood it. And fortunately, some of these gifts were returned. Some of the executives decided to pay for them. And of course, they had the, the wherewithal, financial wherewithal, that it was not a significant burden for them to pay for some of these gifts. But it was, I remember, a stressful and challenging discussion to get them through this. So there's an example of a situation like that. The DOJ recently updated its evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance in that document, it poses the question, what has senior management done to let the employees know the company's position concerning misconduct? And what communications have there been generally when an employee is terminated or otherwise disciplined for failure to comply with the company's policies, procedures, and controls? Let's assume your CEO isn't a proponent of this kind of transparency and you feel like this position risks undermining the whole program. What strategy would you recommend in broaching this subject that could result in the CEO moderating his or her position? Yeah, this is, again, a situation that I actually faced in my early years at Tyco. And at the time, the company had a whole series of compliance breakdowns within the company that there would be, I would be tasked with providing regular briefings to the audit committee, to senior management on the various investigations that were going on. And so those senior level people understood, they knew what had happened, they knew who had been terminated, they knew the, the results of these compliance failures, but no one else in the company did. The rank and file employees had no idea. And I felt that it was really important to put out some kind of communications when people were terminated for misconduct so that the rank and file employees would, would know and understand that there was a robust compliance program, that these types of issues were being found out, and that there were consequences. But unfortunately, in my case, it wasn't the CEO who objected to this. It was one of my colleagues in the law department, the chief labor and employment attorney who felt very strongly that we shouldn't risk publishing any kind of misconduct scenarios for fear that the company would be sued by individuals who might be identifiable in those scenarios. And I tried to explain to him, and I worked with him for quite a while, took many months to finally convince him that, look, we weren't going to publish names. That would be inappropriate. And there can be real liability issues if you do that. But we wanted to publish simply scenarios, genericized fact patterns based on real situations that had happened and make sure the employees knew the newsletter was clear that these were real cases that had happened within the company, but not provide names, genericize the details, don't provide enough specifics that someone could figure out 
who was actually involved other than an employee in North America or an employee in Europe or an employee in the Middle East. You know, we would genericize it in that way and explain, for example, an employee in Asia had figured out a way to bypass controls in the financial accounting system and had been issuing checks to his parents' company and had embezzled, you know, half a million, equivalent of half a million U.S. dollars over the last four years. And we'd explain how this was discovered through an internal audit of vendors and tracking names. And ultimately, you know, we'd explain this individual was terminated forthwith and we are taking legal action in order to recover the funds something like that. And finally convinced our chief labor and employment counsel to let us publish these types of stories on a monthly basis in a newsletter. I think we called it something like true compliance stories or something like that. And it took off. All I can tell you, Scott, is this tool became a hot item in the company. The employees loved reading it. We could track how many times it was downloaded from the intranet and people would discuss it at meetings. And it really, I believe, helped to change the culture or at least helped to reinforce the culture of compliance in the company because people were seeing that these types of misdeeds were being discovered, that we had a robust compliance program, robust auditing, and that when some problem was found, we took action. And there's something in the compliance world that's called organizational justice, which is very important to having a reputable compliance culture, a reputable company and, and a strong compliance culture. And that organizational justice means that people feel that the do-gooders are going to get rewarded and the do-batters or those who cheat, lie, steal, et cetera, are going to suffer the consequences. And that's what we were illustrating to our employees with this newsletter. So it actually was a very useful tool and it's something that we continued, I believe is continuing to this day at the company. Matt, one of the litmus tests that the government uses in determining whether a compliance program has been, quote, operationalized is whether and to what extent the company has exited problematic customer and or third party relationships that could not otherwise be remediated. Decisions like this negatively impact one or more business units who are counting on the revenue attached to that customer, reseller, distributor, or sales agent. The business head who just lost their biggest account could be you know, rightfully outraged and feels like compliance is interfering with his or her business. How do you head that situation off before it threatens to disrupt the overall compliance operation? Great question, Scott. You know, this is another situation where it's critical to have senior management support for the broader compliance program before you adversely impact a business unit. You got to have top management buy-in to the principles and objectives of the compliance program and make sure that that senior level commitment is there to the principles that you promote with your compliance program. If you're going to survive the complaints of a business manager who feels that his business has been negatively impacted by these compliance requirements. So there, this discussion calls to mind a case we had, again, many years ago at Tyco, where as part of our anti-bribery program, we put together a questionnaire for third parties, and we asked them all to complete it as part of due diligence. And we sent one of these questionnaires to a third party in Pakistan. And one of the questions on the questionnaire is, do you pay bribes in order to help generate business? The questionnaire came back with the check mark, yes, of course. Well, this was then... <laughs> A situation where we really had no choice but to terminate that third party. And we went to the business leader and turns out it was a fairly big, in terms of revenue, a fairly large third party provider. And we had to explain to the business leader for that business unit that he had to go. And it was not, again, a welcome discussion in the sense that it was a fair amount of revenue that was lost to that business. 
But I will say, fortunately, you know, we never got significant pushback with the goal of keeping that third party. But that's because we had built a lot of support throughout senior management that the aims of the compliance program were worth it. That in those types of situations, it was not worth it to run the risk of keeping a third party like that. So one of the things, you know, that we had done and that is important to do is to explain the risks and potential costs of improper behavior that the compliance program is trying to prevent. And business leaders have to understand that the compliance program's goal is not to stop business, but to protect the business from the really negative impacts that can happen when you have too high a risk. For example, that Pakistani third party was just too great a risk. So you have to explain the pros and cons. You have to explain that if you, you know, do business that way, you maintain a third party like that, you could lose all your profits associated with that business. You could face fines, penalties, reputational harm, et cetera. So, you know, it just wasn't worth it. You've got to put this in sort of cost-benefit analysis. Not Maybe that's the wrong term, cost-benefit, but a risk analysis for the business for them to understand. And we would constantly stress that there's simply no profit in bad business. Sooner or later, you're going to get bitten and bitten badly. And what you thought was a profitable enterprise will very quickly go in the red if you're taking on too much risk. That's kind of how I would deal with that. I will say one other practice that I adopted early in my career was to communicate regularly. I mean, on an almost weekly, maybe biweekly basis with business leaders, usually via an email or a little note about recent enforcement matters, particularly those involving competitors and the real life consequences of compliance failures. You send them a little news clipping or an article or a headline about how this company or that company ran afoul of a compliance requirement. And here's the cost that they incurred. And, and not just fines and penalty costs, but I would try to also illustrate all of the investigative costs and the legal fees and accounting fees that would add up, you know, ultimately costing the business far more than they ever made from doing basically bad business. And I found that to be really helpful and helped business leaders understand and appreciate compliance and the need for compliance much, much better. Effective compliance officers build goodwill with their leadership teams you know, over the course of time. Hopefully, when delivering bad news or critiquing a leadership decision, that goodwill can serve as a, a bit of a bulletproof vest. What are some strategies that a compliance officer can employ to foster goodwill with company leadership? Another great question, Scott. And you're right. That's something I always endeavored to do was to build up essentially a bank account, if you will. Not really a bank account, but the notion of building up a reserve of goodwill to help you out when you had the tough conversations come up. And my rule number one was get to know the business and be a supporter of the business. You don't want the compliance program or you you're in yourself to be viewed as the no department, as someone who's just going to say no to everything. You really need to be viewed as an enabler someone to help the business really manage the risks that are out there. What we found, we developed a pretty rigorous compliance program at Tyco, and sometimes it was misunderstood, and our businesses sometimes felt that, you know, they just couldn't do certain things just because they knew, oh, compliance was really kind of onerous in the company. And it was onerous, but it wasn't unduly onerous. And we have made great pains to help the business understand that there were many things they could do, and, and oftentimes they would misconstrue and they wouldn't pursue a certain line of business in a misguided way because they just felt they couldn't do it. And we would often work with them to help them gain that business through proper processes. And I'll give you an example. We had a situation where we had a business in Asia that historically had supported a local holiday event, some kind of a holiday celebration, and they would provide donations to the local municipality to help offset the cost of this annual parade and, and celebration in this community. 
And after we'd had a number of FCPA issues within the company, and we then put in pretty significant controls around charitable contributions to government entities where they were scrutinized very heavily, this business suddenly felt, well, we can't make this annual donation anymore. Too bad. It's going to hurt our business that we're not able to have this standing in the community and to provide this donation. But given Tyco's new rules, they just stopped doing it. And they felt they just, there was no way, given the company's policies, they could work it out. That was unnecessary. That was an excess of caution on their part. And when I heard about this, and eventually it kind of worked its way up to me, and I did hear about it, I reviewed the situation, and I talked to the business leader, and I pretty quickly determined there was nothing wrong about this donation. There was no problem making it. They had overreacted, but in part, that I took that almost as our fault, that we hadn't educated them well enough, but they just didn't want to have any kind of problem. So I worked with them and told them you could still make the donations. We just put in a couple of extra controls to make sure we documented carefully where the money went, who it went to. It was clearly not a bribe. It was for a legitimate purpose. And they started doing it again. And they were really thrilled. And they were especially happy that we had taken time to help them work through this issue and actually support their business, as opposed to just, you could imagine someone just ignoring it and saying, oh, good, they stopped spending that money. But, you know, we really wanted to help them out. And so that helped build credibility for my team and my department. That's a kind of a real life example. And another thing that can be done to build credibility is what I mentioned before, constantly provide education to business leaders about emerging compliance issues. And particularly when you can tie it to their business, again, if it involves their industry, if it involves a competitor, if it involves something that you know they can relate to, that's much more preferable than just some kind of generic compliance issue. And it doesn't have to be extensive, you know, regular emails, engaging business leaders at a meeting to just explain to them, contacting them to see if you can make a small presentation at a staff meeting, things like that, just to keep them apprised. And I always found that the business people I interfaced with in those types of settings really appreciated the education and really appreciated the compliance team taking an interest in their business. So just another pearl of advice there. Matt, for the past 38 years since you first joined GE's legal department, a great deal has changed. 9-11 triggered the creation of the USA Patriot Act. SOX issued in an era of transparency and accountability on the part of the CEO and the CFO. Dodd-Frank created the PCAOB and the SEC whistleblower program. Social media companies are, are under intense, increased pressure to monitor their platform for hate mongering. Me Too and Black Lives Matter have fundamentally changed our culture and how the C-suite can really no longer stay on the sidelines when it comes to important social issues. So given all of that, what are some of the changes that you consider critical to the issues of conduct at the top and compliance officers who are empowered to critique organizational leadership? Well, to me, Scott, the most significant change to influence senior leaders of companies today is social media. It's just remarkable how in in the last five to 10 years, social media can drive so much behavior of corporate executives. Give you a couple of examples. Historically, I remember, okay, and this is not about compliance, but it's just about business, business reputation. There was a situation I remember, this was quite a few years ago, maybe five, seven years ago, where an individual flying on, I think it was Delta Airlines, had his guitar damaged, and the company refused to 
make good on it and you know kind of gave him a stiff arm and weren't compensating him for the damage to guitar in transit he went on to social media and he i don't know if he went on facebook or he went on youtube but he did something where he raised the profile of his situation to such an extent that the company had no choice but to you know in order to maintain sales and and uh, not damage their reputation they obviously agreed to remedy it and give him a new guitar or whatever it was and that was an early example of the power of social media to influence company behavior. More recently, I mean, much more recently, we've had just a couple of examples in just the past week that have really been striking, I think. We had the CEO of Goya Food just recently providing comments at a press conference with President Trump about how admirable President Trump is and how the country's so lucky to have him as president, et cetera. And that sparked an almost immediate backlash against this company, which caters largely, almost exclusively to Latinos. Goya is a food company that is a staple of many Latin families, particularly in the U.S., but I think they're a global company. And given the president's conduct towards the Latin community over the last three years, and I won't get into the details of that, but it's not been positive, There was a huge backlash against the statements made by the CEO of Goya and an immediate call for a boycott of that company's products by Latinos. So again, it's social media, the power of social media, really influencing companies. And in this case, didn't change the behavior of the company, but it may eventually if there's an extensive enough boycott. And then one last example, which I think is also illustrative. There was just maybe it was a week and a half ago, a CEO of a tech company in California was eating dinner at a restaurant and he apparently made some racist remarks to an Asian family that was sitting just a table over from him. And this was caught on video by some members of the Asian family. They turned on their cell phone and they captured him. And this video was posted online and it was very clear. He was making some very, very derogatory remarks towards an Asian family that was simply celebrating a family event, was not bothering him at all. Long story short, after this went public, The CEO of this company was widely castigated and criticized for the things that he had said. And now it turns out he's resigned from his role. So he's no longer CEO of that company. Again, just showing the power of social media, the influence of social media on corporate behavior and how it can affect senior executives. And my takeaway from these types of examples is that all executives, frankly, everyone, but particularly executives, who have a lot to lose, need to take caution and be very careful about their behavior outside of the corporation in public, because what they say and what they do is essentially is being monitored all the time. Well, that's all the time we have today. Matt, you've shared some terrific insights with us and we really appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure, Scott. It's great to catch up with you again, and I really appreciate being on your podcast. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Broad Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment. And stay tuned for the next episode of Broad Eat Strategy when we'll hear from Murphy and McGonigal partner Howard Kramer and FTI's own Oz Varal, two experts on artificial intelligence, talk about the use of AI to detect things like insider trading and other forms of market manipulation within the capital markets. If you have an idea for a fraud or corruption case topic or guest you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. 
Thanks for listening.